Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. Today we are speaking with Christian Davenport, the defense and space reporter for the Washington Post's financial desk about his new book, The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos, which follows the stories of these billionaires and the space companies they created. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, aka Spex, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Please let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast.com. So, Mr. Davenport, how are you today? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm great. Thanks for having me. So, uh, what should we call you? Chris, Mr. Davenport? Chris, please. Okay, thanks, Chris. So, can you um, briefly introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, thanks. So, uh, I'm a reporter, as you mentioned, at the Washington Post. Uh, I've been there for about 18 years. I've done lots of different things uh, since I've been there. Uh, I was an editor for a little while, even. And uh, about five years or so ago, I started covering uh, the defense industry. And that's when I kind of got introduced to some of these uh, new space companies like um, like SpaceX and have been sort of uh, become obsessed with uh, with space and the space industry and uh, I've been covering it kind of, you know, full time ever since. First question, uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin were founded in 2002 and 2000, respectively, and today seems like an inflection point in their progress toward space exploration. What makes now the time to tell their stories? As you mentioned, it it really is an inflection point. It's such an interesting time. Uh, There's been so much going on. I mean, when I started covering this, you know, about four or five years ago, uh, SpaceX and Boeing had gotten the contracts for commercial crew to fly astronauts to the International Space Station. Uh, And obviously that was a really big moment. And, um, you know, uh, Blue Origin was starting to fly New Shepard and landing it, and that was a big moment. But we're moving to this point now uh, where we're about to be flying humans again. You know, SpaceX and Boeing uh, for commercial crew, uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's company, doing suborbital space tourism trips, uh, you know, could also be this year. So it's a really sort of important time and if you just look at like you know the past few months and everything that's happened uh with the falcon heavy launch um all of the drone ship landings and land landings for spacex i mean if you if you kind of go back in the past five years it just was so busy and there was so much going on and i was covering it like crazy for the washington post and i just started thinking like you know there's something bigger here than just that you know sort of transcends the newspaper and sort of daily news and even like big, you know, front page takeout stories. I felt like, you know, it's a larger story to be told here. So that's what I wanted to do in the book. Um, uh, but your question's a really good one because, you know, like, you know, the, the struggle for me in writing is like, how do you end it? Um, because there is so much going on and sort of what's the end point. So I think it sort of ends with, you know, uh, an idea and that, you know, really points forward. Um, but a lot of the book, frankly, kind of looks back at uh, Jeff and Elon in particular, some Richard Branson, some Paul Allen, and kind of explores where they come from, what their ideas are, what they want to accomplish, and how they got there. What's sort of the culture and ethos uh, of their companies, and what are their backgrounds like that sort of bring them to their visions? Because in some ways, they're really similar, and in some ways... Um, you know, they're really, they're really different. We can get, we can get into that maybe a little later. Um, but as to why now, I mean, I kind of felt like, you know, we're around and it's not a perfect analogy, but we're kind of, it's like, you know, 1903 and we're watching the Wright brothers in a way. Um, and, you know, one of these interesting things that I always keep in the back of my mind is we had the Wright brothers in 1903, uh, first, you know, powered flights of aircraft and then by 1955, there were more people in the United States flying on commercial airplanes around the country than were taking the railroad, which had been the means of travel. And so what I wanted to do, even though we're in the sort of early days of this new space era, I wanted to kind of document that for history and sort of have something that we could look back on, because I really do think 
then in like 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll look back at this time as really sort of historic. Um, in your book's introduction, you, you mentioned um, Richard Branson, Paul Allen, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, um, that you've mentioned that they have poured their money into private space since the 90s. Um, do you think that these types of investors um, would make their way into the space industry eventually, sort of around this time, the technology's growing, the money's getting to be here? Do you think there's something special about these specific um, entrepreneurs, or is it just a coincidence that they all came into this space at the same time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, Elon founded uh, SpaceX in uh, 2002 and, you know, started off with, uh, I think it was like $100 million of his own money at, that he had after the, you know, the proceeds of the sale of of PayPal. Um, and I think it may well just take SpaceX first, because I think they're really important in that they paved the way for everybody else in a lot of ways. And, and not just the other billionaires, but like this new space industry that you're seeing kind of flourish now with a lot of these small launch vehicles like uh, Rocket Lab and Virgin Orbit and even companies like Planet and Made in Space that are sort of, you know, coming up in their wake. Um, but I, I attribute it to sort of the three things. I mean, there's the personal investment of Elon that gets the company started. But I write, you know, the sort of opening scene from one of the chapters that focuses like on this guy, Andy Beal, who in a lot of ways was like Elon before Elon. He's a self-made, you know, uh, multimillionaire, billionaire type, you know, absolutely brilliant, um, you know, had this very, uh, you know, lucrative real estate business and went into banking. And this was like the late 90s. And he was thinking about, you know, very much like Elon. And, and Jeff, like this is an industry that's ripe for disruption. Like we could uh, do it better, we could do it more efficient, we could be more reliable, we'd just be better than the way it's done. And and um, tried to do it himself, and ultimately failed. And I don't think it was just because it didn't take money alone. He couldn't break into the market that was you know dominated by governments and large traditional contractors. And there just he felt like there wasn't room for him, hard as he tried to get in. Uh, so what, what Elon did, and what's interesting because Andy Beal was in McGregor, Texas, where SpaceX has its, uh, test facility down there. And after Beal Aerospace folded, it was like vacant and, you know, this, it was just sitting there and McGregor, Texas, you know, had this huge vacant piece of property on its hands. And, you know, Elon came along and was like, I'll take it. And, uh, you know, and it's sort of a perfect, it's just sort of amazing that here was another you know, brilliant billionaire who was on that same piece of property trying to do the same thing, who had just completely failed. And Elon's like, yeah, like a couple of years later, I'll give it a try. Sure, why not? Um, but what I think differentiated Elon, it's not only the, the capital he put into it, but then he and SpaceX just waged all-out war in Washington. Um, they just, you know, everyone looks at, like, the lawsuit in 2014 for the EELV, the National Security Launch Contracts, you know, but Elon, those guys sued over that, like, a decade ago, and I, around 2005, even though they hadn't launched the Falcon 1 yet, and it was still, like, three years away before they'd even launched that, and he's suing over EELV. They sued over the creation of the United Launch Alliance. Uh, he sued when rocket plane Kissler won the sole source contract for NASA. It was a relatively small contract, like $278 million or something like that. And he sued over that and he won. And that was sort of the key because that led to, you know, the COTS program, um, which then, you know, the cargo program, which they're doing now. So it's like a, the money, then B like this trench warfare in Washington, right, with the lawyers. And then the third leg of the stool is like, okay, you know, he won the lawsuit. He won a contract from NASA. They're like, let's see what these guys can do. And then he had to show, you know, they could do it, that they had the technical maturity and the chops to, to fly a rocket. And, uh, you know, we know that story where he flew the Falcon 1 three times. And, um, you know, that was it. He was out of money. And the, the fourth one, if that wasn't successful, uh, if that didn't get to orbit, that was it for SpaceX, and then they they made it. But I see it as those sort of three things, uh, the money, the lawsuits, and then the technical ability to do that, you know, in partnership. Uh, but going back to the investment, you know, then you have Jeff taking us 
a much different approach. I mean, SpaceX really relies on government contracts. I mean, it got its start from Elon. It got, you know, uh, was it 2013, 2014, a billion dollars from Google and Fidelity. And they've been able to attract a lot of outside of investment, um, which shows, you know, a confidence in the whole industry, right? I'm at the Washington Post. The saying is, follow the money. And uh, the money has really followed SpaceX, and now you're seeing it go into these ventures. I think Mark Cuban invented in a company called Relativity Space. It's been about, I think the venture capital funding has been, you know, between two and a half and three billion a year the last few years, so it's really come along. But here's, you know, Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos taking this totally different approach where it's like pretty much all Jeff Bezos. It's all of his money. He's got, you know, so much more money uh, than even Elon that he can he can afford uh, to do that. But it's like it's almost at the point where, you know, if you follow these investors, there's a lot of excitement. The question now is, you know, I mean, obviously, SpaceX is a mature and a successful company. But can the industry as a whole survive and thrive and really be a sort of a self-sustaining economy that exists, you know, separate from the government? Um, so, but that's kind of where we are now. So you broke the Blue Origin Blue Moon story in early 2017. At the time, NASA was pretty much headed to Mars with their Journey to Mars program, and it kind of seemed like a pipe dream. Just a year later, and not only has SpaceX announced their Grey Dragon mission, and their BFR announcement had a rendering of it on the lunar surface, but NASA has also pivoted to the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway. Are you surprised by the rapid transition in the end goal? It's only just been a year. And do you think uh, the NASA plan or even SpaceX's plans are going to be achieved, unlike prior goals towards the moon or Mars that we've seen over the past 50 years? Uh, so in terms of whether, um, you know, I was surprised. I, I would say actually no, because I, I, I felt like, you know, the journey to Mars was, uh, you know, like a lot of people, not really real, realistic in the sense that it didn't have the money uh, NASA never got the budgets, so and not to blame NASA, you know, just they never got the funding from Congress. There have been shifts in direction between administration to administration, you know, under uh, Bush and Constellation, we were going to the moon, and then President Obama came in and said, you know, in 2010, you know, look, the moon, we've been there, we've done that, now we should go to Mars, and then Trump comes in and says, no, we're going to go back to the moon, um, I think so. I wasn't surprised that that was the plan, uh, you know, from the sort of the top down, right? From from NASA saying we want to go back to the moon uh, because Mars seemed just so difficult, such a long term horizon goal. I mean, even under Obama, it was like in the mid twenty thirties to you know send uh, humans orbiting around the moon. Um, so I think the, the the moon is it makes more logical sense to a lot of people. It be, then can become a stepping stone to Mars. And so now you've seen, you know, the companies like SpaceX and Blue, who you mentioned, are going to take their cues from uh, NASA, who they hope to be their customer, and say, well, yeah, we can do that, and this is how we're going to do it. And it was interesting because SpaceX has always been Mars, Mars, Mars. You never really heard Elon talk at all about the moon. And then uh, Trump gets elected, and they start talking about the moon again, and you know, all of a sudden, Elon, you know, at the the IAC in Australia, showing a a lunar colony and saying, you know, it's, uh, this was last year, so he's saying, you know, it's 2017, you know, we should have a base on the moon by now. Um, as to whether it's feasible, and you know, this sort of deep space gateway or whatever uh, NASA is calling now, you know, I mean, we'll we'll see it. It's, it takes. Uh, it still takes an enormous amount of money, even if it's more realistic uh, than Mars. Uh, but, you know, their approach, the, the White House's approach seems to be, we can't just do this alone. We just can't. I mean, they're sort of like, we know we can't do it, and we need um, partners with industry to do it. And I thought it was really interesting when I did that story on, on Blue Moon for the Post, one of the, the quotes from Jeff Bezos was, you know, I, you know, they want to partner with NASA and build this lander uh, using the technology that they got from New Shepard to do their uh, pinpoint landings. Uh, but Jeff is very clear in saying, you know, I'm willing to self-fund a lot of this, meaning like we'll take up some of the, you know, provide some of the resources that NASA just doesn't have. 
Um, and what you heard SpaceX talking about after, you know, the COTS program, which led to the development of the Falcon 9 and the whole cargo uh, delivery program to the International Space Station, you hear SpaceX talking about, we want a COTS program, a public-private partnership program, but for deep space, right? And so if NASA's going to the moon, SpaceX saying we can partner, you know, um, with that. So as to whether it's achievable, you know, I don't know. We're just gonna, we're just going to have to see, you know, where where the resources are. And let's note too. I mean, just you know, honestly, to, you know, to be fair, you've got the big guys who are interested in this as well, with Lockheed Martin and Orion. Uh, you know, could be critical. Boeing, you know, runs the International Space Station, but I know they're very interested in you know the the lunar outpost and the in the gateway. You know, that would be in in cis lunar space, and you could send landers down. Uh, and, you know, ULA wants to be a part of this well. You could see a partnership even actually between ULA maybe launching uh, Blue Moon's lander. Um, so I think that once you put all those together, it seems perhaps more real than previous efforts. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. Sure. Well, I'd, I'm going to jump back to the what you were talking about before, Chris, which was a perspective I had not heard before, not that I've done the research you have, but it sounds like lawyers opened up space, which is... An interesting perspective. Do you think that this market is going to stay viable commercially, or is it going to return to governments, or is that just something that we kind of have to wait and see? Yeah, um, I mean that's you know that's the big question. I mean, can there be a self-sustaining economy in space? So right now, where do we go? We go to the International Space Station, uh, and what what NASA pays like two to three billion dollars a year. To do that, that's our destination. That's where we go. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a government customer. Now, as to whether you can commercialize that, we'll see. But, you know, we, we focus a lot on the launch providers, uh, you know, SpaceX and Blue and ULA and, you know, all these things. But what's sort of a critical component to all this are, you know, the destinations and the habitats. And so companies like um, uh, Bigelow. And the you know they've got their beam module that's on the International Space Station now, the inflatable habitat that's made of like I think it's essentially like Kevlar, you know that blows up, and they've got their plans for the B three thirty, and to create you know uh, orbiting labs in space. Um, but that's the thing; you need a place to go, and right now the only place to go is ISS, and that's a government function if we're going to go to the moon you know that's going to be i think led by the government as well um so how does it become a self-sustaining economy i don't know but you can kind of see the glimmer of a lot of different things that are happening um and to go back to launch for a minute i think it also starts with and this is one of those moments where elon and jeff like really agree that you need efficient, reliable, and much more affordable access to space. So you've got to bring down the cost of launch uh, for any of this to happen, right? If it's big, if it's too expensive, it's just, it's just not going to happen. It has to be more routine and more affordable. And reusability is obviously key to that. So I think that's sort of a first step. Um, and, you know, landing the boosters, and we the companies have made tremendous strides on that, Um uh, you know, with the Falcon 9 and then with, uh, you know, Blue Origin's next vehicle, the the new Glenn, you know, if they're able to perfect that technology and to do it, that will be huge as well. Uh, but then you've got, you know, things like the satellite uh, technology and the move to small sats and Earth observation and communications and all these talks about putting up constellations of satellites in low Earth orbits that would require a huge number of launches, you know, if we're talking about, you know, 4,000 satellites up there, uh, that creates, you know, a whole new market that's, you know, not really there right now. Um, and, you know, I think this is further down the road, but the whole notion of uh, the resources in space and asteroid mining and, you know, using the moon uh, as a gas station in space because there's, you know, uh, water at the poles and the the oxygen and the hydrogen could be used as propellant that, you know, helps you get deeper into space, uh, let alone, you know, the precious metals that you could find um, in space. I think that's that's further down uh, the road. But to, so, 
you've got all these components that are starting to happen and you've got these wave of, of billionaires, you know, and that's who I wanted to focus on for the book, who are totally dead serious about making that happen. Um, you know, I, I really think it's, you know, for both Elon and Jeff, I think it's their biggest passion. I know they've got a lot of another, other ventures. I think this is what they're really serious about and they want to have it happen. And these are guys with track records of accomplishing what they set out to do. So, you know, I don't know. It's really hard though. So we'll see. Well, you compared this to the early days of aviation. Is this the beginning of a, another space race? In some ways, yeah. I mean, we've got like space races all over the place here. Uh, you know, I focus in the book uh, on on Elon and Jeff, SpaceX and Blue Origin uh, to uh, a certain extent. But you've got uh, SpaceX going up against the United Launch Alliance. That's a huge rivalry and a huge competition going for those national security launches. Uh, that's big money. And Elon uh, and his team, you know, sort of looked at those very early on as as a key to as a key source of revenue that if they could win those contracts it'd be just be huge for the company um you've got a race now between spacex and boeing for a commercial crew like which one of these companies is going to be the first to launch uh humans from u.s soil for the first time since the space shuttle was retired in 2011 that'll be you know huge uh, that's another huge race now you've got a Blue Origin coming in, uh, you know, with their new Glenn rocket when that's ready in a couple of years, if they're able to hit their milestones with their BE-4 engine. Uh, they've said they want to compete for national security launches as well. So now you've got Blue Origin, SpaceX, and ULA going for that business. Maybe they'll go for some of the NASA NOAA missions as well. <clears throat> they're, already in the, they're already signing up customers for the commercial satellite launch market so they're competing there uh and now you've got you know a, a budding rivalry and competition between blue origin and virgin galactic for suborbital um tourist flights uh you know who's going to be the first to launch uh tourists past the carmen line to 100 kilometers so it's like their race is all over the place and you know i would argue and i'm sure they would all argue that this is a good thing uh that when you have single providers and no competition, we don't go anywhere. We don't advance. We don't innovate. I mean, what got us to the moon in the Apollo era was the race with the Soviet Union. And I have a line in the book about how, you know, sort of talking about this, and, and I think the line is something like, um, you know, rivalry is the best rocket fuel. And, uh, you know, I think they, and, and Elon told me for my interview, in my interview with the book, he said, look, if I had a button that I could press, to make Blue Origin go away, I would not press that button uh, because he knows it's good for for them to push each other, um, and it's good to have a rivalry, even if it gets at times personal. That's only going to make them better and more efficient. And so, uh, you know, I think it's good for the whole industry. You did mention a uh, rivalry between uh, these different companies, but on a personal level, with Elon and and Jeff uh, both being billionaire entrepreneurs and passionate about space. In the popular culture, we see it as a personal rivalry. Um, so is that something that we just perceive uh, based on the competition and things? Or is it does it go deeper than that? Like, how, what's the relationship between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk? So, uh, you know, in early days, uh, they used to talk every now and then, not, th not that frequently. There, um, Elon did tell me they had a dinner early on, 2004, 2005, time frame i don't think they really talk now at all uh but yeah it's uh there is a rivalry there and it and it goes back uh sometime they're they're so different in their approaches and their personalities um but you know if you just look at i mean we focus on everyone remembers the rocket landings and after um new uh, blue origin did it with their new shepherd and elon went on this rant on Twitter about how, you know, they had been doing that with their grasshoppers and testing, you know, flights that, you know, short hops that went up and down, uh, you know, and it's totally different. Elon would say when you're landing, uh, as he calls it, an orbital class booster, uh, just because it's that much more difficult than a suborbital booster, which just goes up and down. 
Um, and that got pretty heated, I mean, frankly. And then, you know, obviously, like a month after SpaceX did it in December 2005, um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos tweeted, welcome to the club. So there was definitely some, some back and forth there. But it extended even earlier. I mean, if you remember um, uh, Launchpad 39A, which had just been sitting there rusting away uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, unused since the shuttle. Uh, was retired in 2011, and, you know, there's no more hollowed ground, uh, you know, for space in in the United States, anyway, than uh, Launch Complex 39A, where Apollo 11 launched from, first shuttle mission, I think the last shuttle mission, it's just, uh, you know, got all of this great history, and it was wasting away, Frank, it was rusting in the uh, salt air on the Florida Space Coast, and NASA was, like, going to give it to... SpaceX and Blue Origin uh, made a bid for it and said, we want it. And, you know, sort of an interesting dynamic here because we were talking about earlier how SpaceX was trying to break into the market early on and, uh, you know, had to file a few lawsuits. (laughs) And Boeing and Lockheed didn't take Elon or SpaceX seriously at all and said, well, you know, this guy doesn't have a rocket. How could he compete for national security launches? Elon was treating Jeff and Blue Origin almost the same way over in this during this 39A dispute saying, you know, Jeff Bezos doesn't have an orbital rocket. Um, and at the time had never even launched New Shepard. And then, you know, he gave that famous, you know, uh, line about, you know, and if they do ever come up with a rocket that's capable of meeting all of NASA's requirements, which is what, you know, Launch Complex 39A was built for, <laughs> then we'd gladly share it with them. But I think the chances of that actually happen are, you know, the chances of unicorns dancing in the flame duck are greater than that happening. So, you know, there is a a jibe. And, uh, you know, Elon shoots, you know, directly from the the hip. And I don't think it's too hard to draw a dotted line between those comments to the back and forth on on Twitter uh, a couple years later. You know, we should note, too, that since then, you know, they've... they've, uh, played nice with each other. Uh, you know, they realize that competition is good, but you don't, you know, just given who they are, their, you know, celebrity stature, that the, the media just eats it up. And, um, you know, I think while competition is good, they don't want it to be too overblown. So they sort of, you know, scaled it back. And, uh, you know, during the Falcon heavy launch, I think Jeff tweeted, you know, good luck to them. So, you know, you're seeing them play a little bit more nice now. Yeah. And you brought up the lawsuits. Uh, SpaceX sued Blue Origin about their patent for barge landings, where SpaceX was had built their autonomous spaceport drone ships and were practicing water landings. Uh, but there was a patent by Blue Origin that says, no, like we've patented this technology. You have to pay us to license it. Or you can't land your rockets when even with the new Glenn renderings we've seen, they're not likely to land on a barge in their renderings. It's a whole ship for the next three, four years. Yeah, no, that's right. That's another sort of point um, of the uh, point of tension between the two in the years. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I, I mentioned that to to Elon when I interviewed him for the book. And uh, he was like saying, oh, that was ridiculous. And he said, yeah, Jeff, one-click Bezos, uh, referring to, I think it was a controversial Amazon patent, you know, on the one-click <laughs> technology. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, you know, you can point to multiple. There was uh, Ashley Vance wrote about in, in his book uh, about how, you know, SpaceX had set up a screen on the emails uh, to look for... Um, uh, you know, poaches by Blue Origin trying to hire away SpaceX employees. They do go after each other. They do compete um, with each other for talent. Um, I uh, I found a lawsuit that's uh, in in my book. There was a uh, a Blue Origin employee who I think left Blue Origin, but after he had left, he was trying to recruit people from SpaceX to bring them over to Blue Origin, and. Uh, I believe SpaceX sued him as well. So are these these definite moments of of tension throughout that are aren't just the you know the ones that we saw on Twitter, uh, but that was sort of the tip of the iceberg for some of these other things that that you're mentioning. I, I did want to note that um, I, I saw the at the beginning of your book in the introduction you include a timeline of 
major milestones and events. Um, and it really brought to light how a lot of these developments are happening much more rapidly than we might realize, um, and also simultaneously. So uh, in, uh, I wanted to ask, um, so we complained for years about how long Falcon Heavy took, um, even though it was very quick by rocket standards. That's one example of the pressure put on by Elon's insane schedule goals and the fast-paced startup culture. But on the other hand, Blue Origin's motto, Grata Team Ferocitaire, embodies the philosophy, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You compare this to the fable of the tortoise and the hare, Blue Origin as the tortoise, SpaceX as the hare. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness on each regime this far, thus far, and what do you think we'll see in the coming years as a result in the difference in these philosophies, especially since you've chosen to look at this whole um, area from a very high level macro scale. Yeah. So, uh, right. Elon's the hair and he's very flashy and he's out there and, you know, is just brilliant at marketing and getting attention and media attention. And, you know, that's almost like we talked about the three pillars before of what made SpaceX successful. I think that actually could be a fourth frankly, just his ability to get attention. In 2003, he paraded the a model, the Falcon 1, uh, like down Independence Avenue on the National Mall in Washington um, so that like government officials at NASA and the FAA could, you know, have a gander at it. And, uh, you know, he just had makes so much, so many headlines and is so flashy, but he, you know, and he's, People criticize him for that and for a lot of reasons, but, you know, for being for over promising and being late. Uh, but ultimately, at least so far, he's, you know, kind of really um, delivered. And I sort of contrast Blue Origins, that motto, slow is smooth is, and smooth is fast with something that Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, said to me when I interviewed her uh, for the book. And, you know, she was just like, we're, you know, head down, plow through the line. You know, it's just you know, go for it at, at all costs. And, uh, <clears throat> Elon's got this, uh, motto where he tells, uh, his employees, like, if you're in a meeting, we often find ourselves at work in a you know big meeting and you're like, why am I even here? This is a waste of my time. I could be more productive. And Elon's rule is if that, like you find yourself in that situation, like get up and leave, just go. <laughs> like you have his standing permission. Um, so, uh, but here's the interesting thing, because Jeff is so different and their company is so different. And where SpaceX is getting all the attention, like if you do public uh, relations for Blue Origin, at least for, you know, the first like 15 years of their existence, your job is to keep them out of the news. Um, they just wanted to be as secretive as possible. You know, like you walk in there and they uh have you signed an NDA? I mean, I obviously didn't because I'm a journalist, but, you know, other people sign uh, NDAs and they're so quiet and so secretive and just very slow and methodical. And it's like they fly under the radar and nobody's paying attention. And then and nobody was paying attention. No one knew like what they were doing, even within the industry. Like they weren't like making friends with people they weren't going to the conferences or functions keep or expectations partnering. low yeah i mean i think they were the expectations were low and i think that's how they wanted them um just like we're gonna just be over here quietly and secretively doing it and, and you know jeff likes to say and blorge's motto is like we'll talk about something after we've done it like we're not gonna say oh we're gonna fly you know this big rocket or do this big thing. We're going to, you know, only once when we've done it. Now, now let's be clear. That's changing a little bit, but they wouldn't talk about new Glenn until the BE four engine development was well underway. Only then did you sort of announce that. Um, and, you know, I think you have to take them very seriously. Um, you know, they're growing really fast. I think they have something like 1,400 employees now. It might even be more. They're hiring like crazy. They're hiring top people. Um, you know, I think this is what Jeff is really passionate about. He talks about space in a way that doesn't really talk about Amazon. I mean, he talks about space and, like, his legacy, you know, and saying, like, if I'm 80 years old, then I can look back at my life and say, we helped build a transportation infrastructure that helped get us into the stars and open up this new economy in space, then I'll be a very happy 80 year old. Um, 
And that deliberative approach is like, it's, I mean, it's slow. And if you're a journalist, frankly, it could be, you know, frustrating because you want to know what's going on behind those closed doors. But, uh, you know, they, they are pulling out and having success. So, you know, uh, Elon poo-pooed them early on, but, but uh, I think now they're taking Blue Origin very seriously. Um, so, you know, like, watch out. I really like how you highlight that in the uh, in a silly way to die early on in your book. Well, you you target both their secrecy, but also you you present a really human side to this story that we don't see when we're talking about all the technical aspects of what SpaceX or Blue Origin are doing. So I think that you you've written this book in a really engaging fashion. Thanks. You know, it's. Uh... Right, because I, you know, I come to it as a as a journalist and not an, an engineer, um, and you know what I'm drawn into is the characters and the human beings and the stories, and you know with this they're just such great, amazing uh, characters, you know, with such outsized visions and personalities, but their backgrounds are really interesting, and I think, you know, Elon's so out there. I think some of the more revelatory things in the book are frankly about uh, Jeff and seeing him and, and i told him this when i was trying to get him to participate i was like we all see you through the lens of amazon uh but i think to really understand you we need the public needs to see you through the lens of space because i think that's what you're really passionate about or you know as passionate if not more so than amazon and you know he talks and he's not kidding i think when he talks about being five years old and watching you know uh, neil armstrong and buzz aldrin walk on the moon He's, you know, gotten to, he knew Neil Armstrong before he died. He's, he's friendly with Buzz Aldrin. Uh, you know, you had a lot of the Apollo astronauts, uh, you know, come and, and visit, uh, went into the New Shepard crew, uh, capsule. I think it was at Oshkosh, Wisconsin at an air show there. And I know that he was over the moon about that. Um, but, you know, his childhood, huge Star Trek fan. You know, his dog was named after a character on Star Trek. His his company now, like that, you know, that he used to buy up all of the land in West Texas that he did secretly, uh, you know, in the early two thousands, is uh, is called Zephram LLC, and it's named for a Star Trek character that you know developed the the super powerful engine. And so he had a huge passion for it as a kid. And, you know, it's really funny because now he talks about, the, you know, the Blue Origin, the goal is the day when we have millions of people living and working in space and this very sort of Gerard O'Neillian vision for space and just being out among the stars, not necessarily focused on a single planet, but just being out there. And and he talks today about, you know, we got to go to space uh, to preserve the Earth. I mean, that's sort of one of the goals that we should, he, he sort of jokes that uh, the Earth should be zoned you know, residential, and that we should, you know, all heavy industry should be lifted off the surface of the earth, and that should be done in space, where the resources are unlimited, like we have limited resources here on earth, and, you know, we're going through them, and, but in space, they're everywhere, and so in high school, and he's 17 or 18, and giving the valedictorian speech at his high school, he doesn't say zone, uh, earth should be zoned residential, but he says earth, earth should be preserved as a national park, so he's been talking this way for decades. Uh, and when he went to Princeton, he was the um, president of uh, SEDS there and uh, had a huge passion for space. And then even you know after college, before Amazon, he was working at that hedge fund, he went to this uh, auction in New York City at, at Sotheby's. And it was all of this uh, you know, Russian cosmonaut paraphernalia. And he wasn't, you know, he hadn't founded Amazon, so he didn't have millions of dollars, but he did go and he bid on two things. One was a, a hammer that he told me had like these metal shavings in it so that in zero gravity, if you use it in space, it wouldn't recoil because it would be weighted sort of top heavy. And the other was a chess set where the pieces would be sort of, there were these grooves in the boards so that they wouldn't just float off the board. And um, he lost both uh, items, to Actually, he lost them to uh, Ross Perot, um, of all people. And, um, you know, and, he's, and uh, he says that, you know, the winning, like Amazon is a lottery for him in a way. And he's using his winnings to, in the Amazon lottery, his billions of dollars, to fund Blue Origin and to fund space. And, um, 
you know, because that means so much to him. Another, you know, story that I tell in the book, I mean, if you want to get a, like, a sense of how passionate he is about space, he went out in 2013 on this crazy mission to recover the uh, uh, F-1 engines from the Apollo-era Saturn V. And he hired, like, the best underwater deep-sea explorers, like, in the world. I mean, who knows? This had to cost millions of dollars. And to first find the engines, they did a reconnaissance mission, and then to recover them. And, you know, like, how, how many tries did it take to find the Titanic, which is huge compared to the F-1 engines, which were massive. But, you know, when you're searching the entire seafloor, and they found them. And uh, Jeff was on this excursion at sea for three weeks uh, with his parents and his brother and his brother-in-law. And they were all out there and they recovered the engines and they and they found them. And, uh, you know, there's an exhibit now at the Seattle Museum of Flight. And you can go see them. And I think the word is that they'll eventually be at the Air and Space Museum. So you've got these you know characters who are really, really passionate about space and aerospace and engineering um, so, you know, it's just a lot of fun to write about. I'd like to get your opinion on one thing, if I may. Um, and that's if, um, Jeff, Jeff Bezos's passion for space is something that I haven't really seen, um, like as, as strongly presented in, in the media in general. And as you said, the Blue Origin intentionally is flying under the radar in a lot of ways. Do you think that has hurt their progress or do you think that with jeff's um lottery winnings from amazon they can literally afford to stay out of it and they don't need that sort of public support that a company like spacex might have yeah that's a really good question um because you're right they you know when you're that quiet you don't um just get the attention and the support of the public in general yeah, like SpaceX is in movies and popular culture and video games and and yeah, and Elon, you know, and he's he's out there and and um, you know that Falcon Heavy launch and the Tesla and the Roadster, you know, right? I mean, um, people look at that and they really identify with that. Um, so I guess it's a matter of how you measure success, right? Because you could still win a government contract or satellite contract. I mean, I don't know that NASA or the Pentagon or Intelsat or Iridium are going to fly with one launch provider over another based on the number of clicks they get on YouTube or Reddit or how many, you know, like, you know, hats or T-shirts they sell. Uh, But, you know, like, that doesn't hurt either. Um, So I think that's in part why you're seeing Blue Origin come out like in the past uh you know two three years and be more public and they did have a small group of journalists myself included out to the blue origin headquarters in i think it was 2016 uh, and then i got to go back there for the book and tour around and see it even in that year like how much it had grown um um you know so and and they are now doing i think a real uh, outreach to you know their potential customers. We saw Jeff Bezos just like a couple of weeks ago at the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, their their team here in Washington D.C. has really beefed up. Um, they've like moved offices. They want more people reaching out to the Pentagon because I think they are going to compete for those national security launches. They're reaching out to NASA. They're proposing things like the Blue Moon um, to try to get that attention. But, you know, the question is, is like SpaceX, are they already too far ahead? Can Blue catch up? Um, and I think, you know, if you're Jeff Bezos, the way you look at this is he takes an incredibly long view, right? He's not thinking about next year or next quarter. He's thinking, you know, years, decades into the future. And what's the best way to get there? What's the best way to build this architecture and so uh, in some ways, it's really just beginning. And yeah, uh, Elon and SpaceX have a huge advantage. They're way, way out in front. Uh, but I think Blue eventually will will get there. And then once they start to work those relationships, you know, they're going to give everybody a run for their money. Chris, you've had some very great anecdotes uh, throughout. Uh, but one thing we had is during the book, what is your uh, favorite anecdote that you uncovered while writing this? Yeah, it's, uh, there are a lot of good stories, you know, out there. It's so much fun to write in, you know, even like, you know, Richard Branson's history and Virgin Galactic and the, and the things they're doing. But I, I think my favorite 
is um, it's a SpaceX story, and it's illustrative of you know Gwen Shotwell's head down, plow through the line, and how they just you know go for it. And uh, it's a story where I think it was the second launch of Falcon 9, first launch of the Dragon spacecraft. And uh, it's the day before the launch, and they do the pre-flight inspection, and they find a crack in the uh, nozzle or the skirt of the second stage engine. And they're like, oh, man, like, what do we do? And, you know, if you're anybody else, if you're NASA, you know, any rocket provider, you pull the rocket down, you take it, separate it, inspect the engine, probably inspect your whole engine processing line. How did this happen? Um, delayed months. But instead, Elon says, and he's got you know his group, his team around him, his group of engineers, and says, well, so like, what if we just cut around it? Like, cut around the crack. <laughs> you know, as if it were like a crack in your fingernail, and you just cut off your, the you know, bit of your fingernail. And they went around and did the calculations and since it was a second stage engine you know they'd already you know gone up into space and they'd already built in you know uh enough margin that they felt like they could still hit their orbit and yeah they'd lose performance because the uh, nozzle would be shorter but you know they felt like they could still hit it so like that night they send this engineer from hawthorne california spacex's headquarters you know, to Cape Canaveral with like a pair of shears and he climbs up into the into the rocket and cuts around the engine nozzle and they launched the next day, like on time. Right? They weren't delayed five minutes. And you know, people look at that, you can look at that two ways. And you're like, you know, that's Elon. They just put constantly, constantly pushing the envelope, pushing harder, innovating, uh, you know, like a startup. And those were early days, but now you look at something like that and you're like, yeah, if you've got people on the, you know, if you're starting to fly commercial crew and or you've got bigger customers and now that they're more of a mature company, right, and, you know, they've had so much success and they've got a lot more riding on these launches, you know, I don't know that they'd necessarily do that. But to me, it really sort of, if you want to understand SpaceX, like to me, that really, you know, that tells the story. One thing I noticed uh, reading through your excerpts is that this book seems to have uh, a really great collection of these stories that really kind of personify the companies. And we've been following SpaceX until a lesser extent Blue Origin for years now. And we've heard the stories about the skirt, uh, the SpaceX sharpshooter in Texas, the CRS-2 stuck valve and things like that. But if you're not following the company day to day and you're looking at Elon's Twitter and you're looking at what someone says at some talk at a conference, you might not get those humanizing moments. Uh, what do you think the role is in this book of kind of preserving the, that history and that those moments and disseminating that to a larger audience that might not have been there? Yeah, no, that's 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 a great question. That's what I really wanted to do is, is you know, we've seen... You know, the la- you see the launches, you see the landings, uh, you know, you can follow on Twitter or the webcast, but there's so much going on behind the scenes uh, that build to those moments, you know, that I really wanted to, to capture because and, and draw those stories out of people. And, um, you know, it's fun to kind of get longtime people at SpaceX, like, you know, uh, Tim Hughes, their general counsel, who'd been there, like, from the very beginning, reflect on his time there and to tell some of those early stories and the risks they were taking. Um, you know, like on the, the lawsuit for the EELV Pentagon launches, you know, there's a story about how, the you know, Elon's in this car in Washington with some of his associates, and they're like, are we going to file the lawsuit or not? And, you know, Elon has this, like, quirk where he'll just go quiet on you. And, you know, people talk about it when they interview with him, and all of a sudden he's like, says nothing, and you're just sitting there, and he's thinking. And so... He's just thinking, and it was like this, like five, seven minute, eight minute, like moment of silence where Elon, you know, the way it was told to me, it's just sort of going through all of the scenarios of what if we sue, if we don't sue, how could this play out? Like doing a, you know, like a fault tree analysis on this decision and the various places it could go and what the outcomes could be, and then ultimately it's like, yeah, let's do it, file the suit. So, right, we report on the lawsuit, but you don't see those moments where in a book, in a book like this, I could capture that and sort of tell the story 
<clears throat> because, you know, there are huge risks. I mean, it's just such a risky business and it's so hard. And, um, you know, you have to sort of see the, the people behind it and how much they have riding on it. Are these um, space barons, are they unique as individuals? Do they have something that maybe the rest of us don't, aside from billions of dollars? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've gotten to spend a little bit of time with, you know, Elon and Jeff, particularly. They're, you know, obviously they're like just so smart, right? And and one of the ways, so I can't keep up with them, you know, intellectually, and they both really understand intimately the engineering of their rockets and the engine design, and, you know, they they fully get that. And, it, you know, so like, for example, with Jeff, he was taking us around uh, the rocket, and you'd get some rocket engineer, like all of a sudden just go like way into the weeds, like really technical stuff. And the journalists on the tour were kind of like, you know, like weights way over our head. And Jeff like could see, could see that. And so he sort of stopped and like intruded and like, you know, started translating for us what, what he meant. But the other thing that, you know, that I found interesting when I interviewed them, I got a fair amount of time with, with both and I've spent some time with them is that their like their ability to focus on something it's like it's insane they they just when they get on something it's very hard for them you know that they go so deep on it so for example like i have an interview even for like a few hours you know i'm like i got a whole list of like we got a lot to go through i want to talk about your childhood and early days of spacex and blue origin i've got all this list of questions and i feel like all right we kind of check that box i want to move on and so i'm going to the next question but they both would like sink into it so deeply. And, you know, at first I try to like, you know, like, you know, I'm a Washington Post reporter. I should be a pretty good interview and kind of nudge them away to another direction. No, wasn't happening. <laughs> they're they like so focused on that issue. You just had to kind of ride it out because they're going to like fully go deep on it until like they felt like they've totally explained it. Like the question to you is, is a, it's like a problem set and, and it's not solved until they've done like a full explanation. So their answers aren't like sound bites. They're, you know, introduction and like the thesis statement and then like the supporting arguments. And like these answers come in like fifteen hundred word answers. And Jeff even talked about when he was a kid in like kindergarten, they go from station to station to do various tasks. And, you know, the the teacher would say, Okay, now it's time to go on to the next uh task and he wouldn't, you know, he was like, well, I'm not done with this. So he wouldn't move and he'd be so intent on it that the teacher had to like physically pick him up in his chair and move him to the next task. And I was like, yeah, I could totally see that by the way this, the interview was going because they were both really like that. Are, are you optimistic about what someone, some people would claim to be impossible goals? Um, very, very ambitious goals for the future. Uh, colonization of the moon of mars mass transport to both of those places and maybe beyond um from your reporting and what you've seen in in the the way this industry is moving it's a great story for sure but do you do you think it'll pan out uh i don't know i don't know but it's going to be so much fun watching <laughs> <laughs> you know and i mean just like and being a reporter and covering this stuff and just watching it happen, um, you know, there are a lot of little steps that, you know, we call little. But, uh, I mean, just think, like, this year, if there is a return of human spaceflight. Now, think about this. This could be interesting, right? Because everyone's focused on commercial crew and, and the race between SpaceX and Boeing to restore human spaceflight from U.S. soil. And that's getting all the attention, what if Jeff Bezos beats him with a, you know, a test flight with a human being on it uh, from West Texas on a suborbital flight? Or if Richard Branson does it, right? So it's just kind of like, uh, you know, that big picture thing. You know, you know, Jeff talks about his, his you know, goal about, you know, the, the great inversion where you're doing asteroid mining and Earth is preserved as a national park um, and zoned, you know, residential you know, that's hundreds of years into the into the future. And, you know, you can kind of compound this out with Moore's Law, although some sort of argue it doesn't necessarily always apply to space because it's, you know, it's just so hard. Um, I don't know. It's, it's you know, a lot of people said you couldn't land a, a rocket, and they did it. 
um, you know, that they wouldn't fly the Falcon Heavy, and then they did it on the first test flight, and that flying the Roadster was a, was a prank, and then, you know, it was inspiring for so many people. Um, you know, I, I don't know. And maybe that really, in the end, you know, a more conservative approach of a Lockheed and a Boeing and a government program you know, that's infused with a little bit more of the innovative ethos that these guys are, are bringing and that there's some happy medium. That's kind of what it, what it takes. But I don't know. I'm just having a ball watching it as I'm sure you guys are. And, you know, it's all, it's all there in the book. So, uh, that was fun. And I think there's going to be a lot more for another one. Oh, I'm quite looking forward to that. Uh, I think, uh, probably last question uh, you've been covering space and defense for about five years. You've been a reporter for almost 20. Uh, looking, Having looked back at the past decade and a half of SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, looking forward, uh, what do you think is going to be like the big headline, obviously this year's commercial crew, but what do you think is the, the big headline uh, for one of those companies that uh, might be sooner than we think? Well, that's a great question. Um, so we're all, we're focused on the moon a lot and these destinations. Um, I'd be curious to see what happens, you know, with these uh, outposts. You know, what the the Bigelow's and Mike Suffordini has a, a company. He's a former um, program manager of the International Space Station. Uh, sorry, I'm forgetting is the name of his company that's also building uh, habitats. I think it's called Axiom. That when you've got these, you know, additional places to go, and what that means, um, you know, maybe actually think of it this way. So, like, we had this moment in the '60s, and so I was born in 1973, and I didn't, I didn't live it. But everyone, you know, you go back and and you know that the Apollo era just inspired people. And you see those pictures of all those people on the beach at Cocoa Beach, you know, rooting on John Glenn. And you're starting to see that again, right? It's not necessarily on the beaches, although there are a lot of people there, but like on Reddit and watching on YouTube and the live streams and like they brought back this energy. But then if you're able to get people going to space, like first you know, obviously it'll be rich people who could afford the $250,000 to go on Virgin Galactic or whatever Blue Origin's going to charge. And you've got this no other class of not NASA astronauts, not military test pilots, but like ordinary people. And then the price comes down. And because, they're, you know, you could see sort of um, a race between uh, Virgin and and Blue Origin, and then SpaceX starts doing it, and then their habitat. So you're not just doing suborbital trips um, where you get four minutes of weightlessness and you unbuckle and you know you look out onto the see the curvature of the Earth and you see countries without boundaries and you see the thin line of the atmosphere and the blackness of space and you have that view that you know everyone says is so transformative. But now that more people have it and it starts to spread. And then people are actually going up into space into hotels, you know, in, in, in I don't know, however many years. And, and that happens and it becomes a thing where you know somebody, you get to the point where you know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody who's been to space, right? And that kind of feeds off itself. And you're talking about, uh, you know, that moment we had in the, in, the, in the late 60s that was so transformative in the Apollo era. Uh, but that was sort of a big government program. But now this is more of a grassroots kind of a thing with all these people doing it. And, you know, you say, well, maybe I'll be able to do that one day or my kids will. Right. And then that sort of becomes something that I think could have a big impact that, you know, maybe one of those things we don't fully understand yet, like how important that could be. This is such an amazing conversation. Um, we're speaking with uh, Chris Davenport of the Washington Post about his new book, The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. Um, is there any, any place on the internet you'd like to mention where people can find this book? And, and uh, maybe you on social media? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's for sale, you know, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Amazon, of course. Uh, 
you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Wapo Davenport, and um, you know, uh, let me know what you think about the about the book. Thanks so much. This is this is Thank awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. If you go to blog.specscast.com, you'll find a post for this episode, which includes a link to buy this book and links to the tweets and articles that were used as sources for some of the facts cited in this conversation. You'll also find show notes for past episodes, opinionated articles, and other posts about the science and technology of space exploration at blog.specscast.com. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSpecs facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com.